All right, one of the things that we want you to realize if you're new to Revolve or you're visiting Revolve is that Revolve, we really view ourselves as a training center to equip people to think and act and live on mission to fulfill the Great Commission here, there, everywhere. And so whether you join a mission agency and you're sent or whether in God's providence you get a different job, you're still sent, okay? And so you're sent to your place of office, your place of work. And so as we prayed over the, Van the Vances, as we prayed over the Davises, as we prayed over the Lassers, um, as you guys are going to pray over myself and David after the service, you're going to pray over me and David after the service as we get ready to go to Greece this Tuesday. So yeah, so if you weren't here the last few weeks, we didn't want to talk about it too much. I feel like I can't see you guys over there. We didn't want to talk about it too much last week because it was the Vances last week and we wanted to focus on what God is doing with them. But we did decide to go to Greece. Um, so David and I are going to Greece on Tuesday evening around midnight actually. And that's going to be what we call a Luke 10 trip. And so you can go read Luke 10 and get a picture of what we mean. But basically, we're going to go out and we're going to look for God-prepared people. And we're going to either share the gospel with them or we're going to train them and equip them. And so we have a ticket to the island of Samos. And we're going to stay in Samos until we feel like God says to go somewhere else. And so we're just going to go and trust that God has something lined up. For the whole story of how we got here, Feel free to corner David and ask him. He loves to tell stories. And, um, and so he would love to share that with you. And so today is kind of building on last week's sermon. Last week's sermon, if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, I encourage you to do that. But we really want to continue looking at this idea of sending and commissioning out to work into the, as the Bible says, into the harvest and to, to do the work of sharing the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins that he was raised from the dead so that we could live forever, and then he sent his Holy Spirit so we could follow him as king. This is, encapsulates the gospel, right? The gospel simply means good news, the good news of the kingdom. And so we, uh, we talked about last week how we were sending the Vances out for that purpose in New York City. And today I just wanted to talk about prayer and fasting, right? For those of us who are home, yes, we're called to be sent to our workplaces, to our families, our friends, our neighborhoods, but what do we do for people like Christian and Elena? Or what do you guys do over the next two weeks for, um, for me and David? Or what do you do for the Lassers? And this may seem basic, but sometimes the basics are exactly what we need to be reminded of. And so I want to begin by reminding you guys that the task at hand is an impossible task, okay? Don't deceive yourself in thinking that you can fulfill this task in your own abilities, your own charisma, your own strength. This is what we see. This is the task, by the way. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I read this last week. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, which is Jesus, clothed in white robes, and they had palm branches in their hands, and they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, that is the end vision. That is the end result that will come to reality. And so either participate in it or don't and watch somebody else participate in it. It's that simple. Either you can take part in that beautiful chunk, every tongue, every tribe, every nation before the lamb, worshiping God, 
or you can let other people do it while you pass the baton. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, this is Jesus' final words as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus came and he said to them, he said, look, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so from that place of authority, I commission you, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. A disciple is a learner, a student, someone who's becoming like Jesus. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you because he's king, right? King Jesus, not, not buddy Jesus. He's king Jesus. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded. And behold, as you do that, this is a conditional promise, as you do that, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus, the end vision is that every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping Jesus. The means to accomplish that end mission is the great commission, which is what we see here in Matthew 28. And Paul, writing, who was a terrorist, he became a follower of Jesus. He used to kill followers of Jesus. He wrote about half of the New Testament. Paul describes what it looks like and feels like to operate in the realm of that great commission with these words. In other words, if you want to know what it's like to devote your life to that, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, that's the good news of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I could not find my brother Titus. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And here's the part I want you to look at. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That sounds pretty nice. Right? Like, I just smell like Jesus. And I'm just walking around Greece eating gyros and falafel with Bill and David, just smelling like Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but then he keeps going. And he says, For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now, I want you to make a note of the fact that when the Bible uses the word aroma, it typically is referring to, anybody know? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Okay? You have an Orthodox Jew during the temple period, and you have someone from Portland who belongs to PETA. That same sacrifice, to one, it's very pleasing. To the other one, not so much. And that's exactly what Paul says in the next verse. Look at this. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among the perishing. To one, it's a fragrance of death to death. To the other, it's a fragrance of life to life. In other words, Paul's saying that as we go about proclaiming the gospel, being good news, proclaiming good news, we proclaim Christ crucified, risen, coming again. We talk about how he sent the Holy Spirit so we could follow him as king. We talk about who this guy Jesus is, that some people are either disgusted with it or other people find it fragrant and pleasing. Okay? Not because you did something right, wrong, or otherwise. Not because you have all of the right skills, all the right tactics. You went to the right this, the right that. You went to the right course, and so you know how to share the gospel properly. No. 
Some people, it will always smell like death. And some people, it will be a breath of life. And this is what he says. Who is sufficient for these things? What's the implied answer, guys? Nobody. Nobody. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word who basically sell God's word to make a profit so they can get a book deal. No, we are men of sincerity commissioned by God in the sight of God. We speak Christ. See, that's what it looks like and feels like to operate in the Great Commission every day of your life. Fragrance of life, fragrance of death. Who is sufficient for these things? No one. Praise be to Christ. You don't need to be. Why? Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The person who doesn't agree with you, they're not your enemy. The political party you don't like, it's not your enemy. This person, that person, they're not your enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers. Well, Bill says rulers. Hold on. Rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Every time Paul talks about rulers and authorities, he's talking about demons. Paul's saying we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so end vision, every tongue, tribe, and nation saved. The means to that end, the great commission. What it feels like in the moment, a big bucket of insufficiency. Why? Because this is a spiritual war against spiritual enemies, and I am a physical person and not even a very good physical specimen at that, and I need spiritual weapons to fight a spiritual war. And that's the point, guys. Spiritual wars require spiritual weapons. You give out all the free iPads you want. People ain't getting saved, okay? Spiritual wars require spiritual weapons. And this is what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus assumes that as you operate in the kingdom of God, you are going to use the spiritual tools that God has given us. That's why he says in chapter 6, when you pray, he doesn't say you should pray. He doesn't say if you pray. He says when you pray, because he knows it's a spiritual tool that you need to survive. He says when you fast. He doesn't say you should fast. He doesn't say if you fast. He says when you fast, this is how you should fast. He says seek first the kingdom. He says don't worry. He says them in that order, by the way. When you pray, when you fast, seek the kingdom, don't worry. In other words, from the right posture of your heart that is spiritually engaged, from a place of intimacy with God, seek first God's kingdom and don't worry about anything else. Let everything else fall where it may. Because when we pray and seek God, when we fast to hunger after him, when we seek first his kingdom, then we can release those fears, release those worries, release those insecurities because now this guy doesn't like me anymore. And we can release all those things because we have a place of deep security in Jesus because of the good news of the kingdom. See, when the posture of our heart is right, when the posture of our heart is in the right place, and we're seeking God in his kingdom, 
He will work through you in your insufficiency to accomplish the great commission so that his end vision is achieved. Are you following me? Yeah? Okay. So we want to look at two passages in Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, 9 to 15. It's going to be a familiar passage, the Lord's Prayer. And then the following paragraph about fasting. Okay? Matthew 6, 9 to 15. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven hallowed or holy be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread or literally in the original language give us our bread for tomorrow and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. And so here's Jesus' modeling prayer. Um, His disciples had just come to him. They said, hey, Jesus, John taught his disciples to pray. Can you teach us to pray? And Jesus is like, sure, bro. And he says that when you pray, pray like this. Now, he doesn't say pray this exact thing. If you don't pray this, God won't hear you. No, he says, pray like this. And so we glean from this about the things that God wants us to see in prayer. And so let's get real basic. First things first, what is prayer? What is prayer? Well, um, I was looking online this week for, uh, you know, some succinct definitions. I wrote one, but I wanted to see if other people were smarter than me. Turns out they are, right? (laughs) And... um, I read this definition in the New City Catechism. Some of you are familiar with the New City Catechism. It's a great app you can download for free. And they define prayer as this. Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God in praise, petition, confession of sin, and thanksgiving. Prayer is pouring out our heart to God in praise, petition, confession of sin, and thanksgiving. My definition was prayer is talking to God. <laughs> so if you don't like New City Catechisms, the Bill, the Bill, the Bayou Billy Catechism is coming out, okay? So prayer, simply stated, is how we talk to God. We talk to God in prayer, right? We primarily hear from God through his word as the Holy Spirit communicates to us, illuminating the words of the Bible, right? That's how God primarily speaks to us, by his spirit and by his word. We speak to God in prayer. So if all you do is read the word and never pray, then you're basically like the spouse who just lets people talk at him or her, but you never respond. And if all you do is pray and never read the word, then you're like the person who never is quiet, okay? And so we have a relationship, a communicative relationship with God. We speak to him. He speaks to us. We pray, and then he speaks by his spirit and by his word. That's what prayer is. But why do we pray? Well, we pray primarily because we want to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. We want to enjoy it. That's like saying, why do you talk to your spouse? Well, it seems like life goes better when we do, right? And so you talk to the people you love. You talk to your kids. You talk to your friends. If you don't talk to someone for five years, your relationship suffers, right? This isn't rocket science, guys. We pray because we want to foster a healthy relationship with God. 
Now that seems obvious, but the, the opposite of it needs to be pointed out. We don't pray primarily to get stuff. And we don't pray primarily because it's what Christians do. We don't pray primarily to get stuff, though God does give gifts. And we don't pray because it's what Christians do, although Christians do pray. That's not why we pray. We pray because we desire a relationship with God. And so the question is, how should we pray? And again, from the New City Catechism, with love, with perseverance, with gratefulness, in humble submission to God's will, knowing that for the sake of Christ, he always hears our prayers. And so if you want to boil that down, how do we pray? It can be described in one word, posture. It's the posture of your heart. You know, in the previous verses, which we didn't read, um, Jesus says, look, don't pray like the Gentiles. They think that they'll be heard for their many words, and they're always heaping phrases upon phrases upon phrases upon phrases. Say that prayer 70 times, and then God will hear you. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Jesus literally said, don't pray like the pagans. Okay? I know some of you grew up in cultures where you were told that's how you pray. Say that prayer 50 times. That's Jesus says the opposite. He says, you won't be heard because of your many words. You won't be heard because of how long you pray. You won't be heard because you say the right words. Why will God hear you? One, because he's gracious and good. Okay, two, because the posture of your heart's in the right place. It's more important. Your po the posture of your heart is far more important than what you say, why you say it, or how long you take to say it. And so those of you who, when you pray in groups and you're like, well, I don't pray like that guy. He sounds like, he sounds like you know, the King James when he prays. And thou God, what a high. Right? I don't sound like that. First of all, good. Second of all, the posture of your heart is what matters. Okay? So I want to point out three basic things about prayer, which we can see in this passage. And um, these are stolen from a friend called Daniel Henderson. He's in charge of an organization called Strategic Renewal, which is all a prayer organization. And these are three of his things that he always talks about on prayer, and they're just great points. The first thing is this, if you want to make simple notes, prayer should be scripture-fed. Scripture-fed. Prayer is scripture-fed. If you look at what Jesus prayed, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. You wouldn't know to pray any of that if you hadn't encountered the word. If you hadn't encountered the word, you wouldn't know that God is your father. You wouldn't know what heaven is. You wouldn't know that God is holy. You wouldn't know that he is a king and that he has a kingdom. You wouldn't know that he has a will. What is his will? How do I know what his will is? All of these things are rooted and fed in scripture. Without the word, you cannot pray these truths. Without the word, you're actually, you don't know what these truths are. See, prayer is rooted in truth. And truth is rooted in the word of God. And without the bedrock of truth, which is the word, I'm going to be honest, prayer is empty because it becomes what I think God is like in my own imagination, 
if you're going through the theology book, that's the definition, you know, of existentialism to some, to some sense, right? If God is only what I think he is or I feel like he is, I'm going to pray to that, but it's not being rooted in the word, and God's not going to give you anything counter to his will, and we find his will, discover his will, see his will in the word. Prayer should be scripture-fed. New City Catechism, again, puts it this way. The whole word of God directs and inspires us in what we should pray. That's why for my personal prayer time every morning, I read the Bible and then I pray in response to what I read. I read a psalm, and assuming it's not an impeccatory psalm, which is like one of those psalms where it's like, punch him in the face, hit him in the jaw, right? As long as it's like a psalm that I feel like I can relate to that day. You know, sometimes I relate to that. But I, I, I make it my own. I, the Lord is my shepherd. God, I thank you that you take care of me. You know, when I run away, you chase me down. You know, you lead me to, to, to green pastures. God, you provide what I need. You provide what I need in the word. You provide what I need physically, my family. I thank you for that. I'm reading the scripture, praying in the light of the scripture. It's scripture-fed prayer. The second thing Daniel mentions is spirit-led it's scripture-fed, spirit-led. He's, he's Baptist, so things rhyme, you know. Spirit-led. Um, spirit-led builds on the word because we, as we read the word, the Holy Spirit enlightens us. In light of the fact that God is the Father in heaven, how do I pray? That's the essence of spirit-led prayer. Spirit instructs my heart. In light of the fact that God is holy, how do I pray? The Spirit instructs us. So in light of the fact that God is holy and you start praying about something that's not, that's probably not led from the Spirit. Prayer should be scripture-fed and spirit-led. And then the third thing is this. It should be worship-based. It should be worship-based. What that means is that when we pray, we are primarily seeking his face, not his hand. You see, often in prayer, we're like a really spoiled child who goes up to their parents, doesn't even look at their mom and dad in the face and just kind of hands out their hand and is like, yeah, I need some money. I got to get some stuff. Like there's some things going on. I need some money. So if you could just, that's what we often do with God. God wants us to seek his face, not his hand. He's delighted to give gifts to his children, but the goal here is to seek his face so that our heart becomes happy in Jesus, right? That we find our joy in Jesus. God is not a genie. He's not a vending machine. Look, he says in the same passage, your heavenly father knows your needs before you even ask them. Now, you might think you have a need that you don't actually need. God knows what you actually need. His goal is, your, is his glory. His goal is your Christ-likeness, and he's going to chase you on home to that end. And when we start with worship, it helps keep us focused as we then present our requests. Okay? Everybody with me? All right. And so a simple rubric for prayer this is when I pray. I've been doing this for a long time, even before I knew what the Discovery Bible study was. It's like conducting upward, downward, inward, outward. And so when I look at a passage of scripture, upward, what am I worshiping God for? Downward, what do I need to confess? Inward, how do I pray for my community? Outward, how do I pray for the world? And I think that way when I look at a passage for prayer. Upward, downward, inward, outward. You can steal it. Matthew 6, 16 to 18. We're going fast, people. I, I got to go fast. 
And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that everyone would know they're fasting. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward because what's their reward? Attention, okay? But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your heavenly Father in secret. And your Father in secret who sees in secret will reward you. So what is fasting? Fasting is intentionally not consuming something, typically food or drink, in order to intentionally crave God. In Numbers 11, we see this passage where the Israelites, they wanted meat. They're craving meat, and they're complaining to Moses, and, and God says, oh, I'm going to give them meat. I'm going to give them so much quail, it's going to come out their nose. And that's literally what he does. And he sends so much quail, and they have this craving. They're just eating it, and they're not even like bothering to cook it, and God strikes them all dead. And the final verse of Numbers 11, it says that they were killed because of their cravings. Okay? The point is this, fasting has us choke out our craving for food so we can realize that we should be craving him. And so why do you fast? Fasting helps you to develop a hunger for God by reminding you that, as C.S. Lewis said, every misplaced desire is actually a desire for God. Every craving that you feel that is misplaced is actually rooted in a deeper craving for the Lord. See, because everything we eat or drink in this life passes through the body, but the food and drink from heaven lasts forever, and it wells up to an artesian well that pours out of us. And so fasting teaches us to hunger for God more than for food. Fasting teaches us to focus on the will of God because Jesus said, my food is to do his will. And he says, I, a man should not live on bread alone, but by every word. So it's the will of God and the word of God. Those are the things we feast on when we fast. I want to give you a couple quick pointers on prayer. I mean, on fasting. A couple quick pointers on fasting. All right? One, check your heart. It's not a diet. Hide your scale if you got to. Check your heart. It's not a diet. Two, check your heart. It's not fasting if your goal is, I'm going to stay really busy this day so I forget to eat. That's not fasting. Go back to point one. Check your heart. It's not a diet. Okay? Number three, check your heart. It's not so you feel in control. Often you're like, I'm going through a terrible situation and I'm going to fast. And the fact that you're fasting makes you feel like at least I'm in control of something in my life. Check your heart. It's not about you feeling in control. Okay? Four. Check your heart. It's not about arm wrestling God. Fasting is about developing your love for God, not convincing God to do something. If I fast, I bet I could trick God. Right? No. It's about hungering for God. Fasting is about hungering for God, hungering for his kingdom. It's about the fact that every time your stomach growls, you're reminded that you more desperately need food, not, uh, not earthly food, but heavenly food, the word of God. You need God's presence. Every time your mouth salivates, it's to remind you that that's how you should feel about the word of God, that the psalmist says that he panted for it, that he longed for it, that he yearned for it. That's how we should feel. Okay? Prayer and fasting. Any questions about prayer or fasting? Because we're done with that. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think you just answered your own question. But did you guys hear Ricky's question? He said, how can you enter into this discipline of fasting without making it a work and realizing that it's about growing in your love for God? And, and even as you grow, that's a gift from God, so you didn't earn it because you fasted. And I said, I think you answered your own question. So the point is you keep that truth, which Ricky eloquently said, you keep that truth in front of your face. Because every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, right? That you were dead in your sins. You weren't mostly dead or a little sick. You were dead. And so life is a gift. Growth is a gift. That's why Paul says, I work out my salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in me, right? I don't work it out with fear and trembling because God's next to me and he might smack me. No, I work out my salvation because God is in me and he's the one who works it. And that should give me a sense of deep awe and reverence because I'm completely at his mercy as I humble myself. And so as you enter into fasting, you do whatever you need in terms of focusing on the word and prayer and, if necessary, accountability so that you are keeping your heart in check and realizing that works accomplish nothing. You're not earning anything from God. It is finished on the cross, okay? This is the whole point of justification and sanctification. It's all a gift. You're not earning any of it. And so you receive it but you're doing this to fall more in love with Jesus. And if that happens, it's a gift from him too. Any other questions about prayer and fasting? So a real practical way, if you've never fasted, uh, I have it right here. Pick a time. Pick a spiritual plan. In other words, I'm going to skip lunch, but during lunch, I'm going to read and pray and journal. Right? Pick a simple plan and start, e start, start easy. Like, don't be like, 40 days, bro. How long has Bill and David gone? Whole time, no water. Like, no. Pick a meal, right? Start low. If, and if some of you struggle with certain reasons why you shouldn't skip eating, like if you have a history of an eating disorder, that kind of stuff, skip something else. You know, in the evening, just decide that you're not going to you know, watch any TV and put your phone down and you're going to spend the evening focusing on the word of God. By the grace of God, hopefully you can get to the point where you can enter into the discipline of fasting, but it may not begin there, okay? And so start small, start easy. So while we're gone, I want everybody um, who's here and calls themselves a follower of Jesus, I want you to come up with a plan for fasting because Jesus says, when you fast. So that could be a, a meal, it could be a day, it could be a Daniel fast where you just eat fruits and vegetables. You know, um, there's lots of resources out there on the web. But pick a plan and follow through on it. Consult your physicians. And so I'm going to end with this. How should you pray for us? Okay? How should you pray for us? How should you pray for the Vances? How should you pray for Revolve as we engage in the community? And I want to point out Acts 19. All right? I know we're a little late, guys. Give me three minutes. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. 
and there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we don't even know what the Holy Spirit is. And he said, well, then what were you baptized into? And they said, uh, into John's baptism. So in other words, they had heard about John, the Baptist, in the beginning of the Gospels, and they had believed John's message that a, a guy was coming who was going to be the coming king, but they hadn't heard anything else. And Paul said, well, listen, John baptized with repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, and that's Jesus. And on hearing this, they were, ba they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul laid his hands on them and prayed, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's, called, that's what they called Christians, before the congregation, he withdrew from them, he took the disciples with him, and he reasoned in the hall of Tyrannus, who had really short arms. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So now, church historians think that these 12 men were responsible to, church, to plant those churches in Revelations chapter 2 and 3 and the surrounding areas, Heropolis, Colossae, Laodicea, Smyrna, um, all of these different places, that's this region. And so Paul went in, and he and his merry men, they found 12 guys who were kind of like kind of believers. They were open, and they basically trained and taught and equipped the snot out of them. And then these guys went into the surrounding countryside and planted churches. And so what can you be praying for? Pray that, one, David and I would have the right posture of our hearts as we go. Because that's what it's all about. It's not about how much we know. It's about our posture of our hearts. Two, pray that we would have wisdom and boldness in engaging with contacts, whether they're locals, refugees, NGO workers, or anyone else. Three, pray for God-prepared people who are like those men in Acts 19. If someone said to me, what would be an ideal trip? I, hes I hesitate to respond because I feel like God's ideas are better than mine. But if, I could, if we could show up and in the first day or two meet a group of new Muslim background believers in the refugee camp or nearby who have come to faith in Christ in their journeys from Afghanistan into the European Union, and then we could spend two weeks training, equipping, reading the Bible, giving them the basics, because guess what? This is the window. And so in other words, get them before they get snatched by the enemy. That would be beautiful. And then we could track with them and follow with them on digital means as they go from the Samos hotspot to the Athens refugee camp, to the Ionia camp, to Germany, to Sweden, and wouldn't it be beautiful if the Lord on this trip raised up contacts that wound up planting churches among Muslims all over Europe? And so let's pray in faith that God would do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Okay? I went six minutes over. Do you guys forgive me? Good, because I don't care. <laughs> let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would help us to learn from these basic things. Pray that we would grow in prayer. Pray that we'd grow in fasting. Pray that we would grow, Lord, in, in just 
um, our posture of our hearts, that we wouldn't make anything about works, God, but it would always be about your grace. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would help us in these areas. And so, Father, we just uh, pray for this trip. We commission it to you. In your name, amen. Because um, we're a little late on time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask any elders who are present, um, if you're an elder and you're present, is it just Dave, if Dave Walker would come, all the other elders are fired. Now, if you would come and you would just pray for David and I, Dave, you want to come up? Pray for me. I don't know why my grammar is so bad today. Sorry. We forgive you this time. Give me a little traveling music for Dave. Okay. Uh, Father God, I, I'm, uh, I'm excited about this trip. Lord, um, I'm excited to see these two men go uh, without a plan. This is, uh, this is a beautiful thing because it's, uh, it's something that neither of them operate in strength there. And in our weakness, your strength is made perfect. So Father, how beautiful are the hands and feet that bring good news. I pray, Lord, that this would be a trip of obedience, as it already has been, where um, we've been on the brink of canceling it a couple times uh, because we didn't have that plan. But, Lord, I just have felt your persistent and faithful uh, spirit just saying, go, just go, and I'll take care of the rest. So, Lord, whether we see the fruit or not, Lord, we know that you have works prepared. And I just pray that you would uh, bless their trip, bless their time. I pray that you would protect them, uh, that it would be just a, uh, an easy traveling time, and Lord, that uh, each person that they need to reach, uh, you would give them sight to see them. Yeah. I pray that the persons of peace that are over there, uh, new believers, whatever it is, uh, I just pray that, that that contact would not be blocked by the enemy, um, and Lord, we know that you can, uh, you can overcome and have overcome already, so we just praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.